Hey friends, welcome to Permission to be Seen. I'm Megan Brown, and on this week's episode, we're hosting a dear friend. His name is Matt Morrissey, and he is a Nashville-based musician, writer, and producer. On this week's episode, we're going to be talking about issues regarding people of color and mental health. And I so enjoyed having Matt on, and I hope you do too. <laughs> cool. Well, hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Hello, Meg. It's good to be here. Good. Is it okay if I call you Meg? I've never actually asked. Oh, totally. Okay. I think, like, I feel super loved when people call me Meg, because mm. it's just like an endearment, like someone knows me. Oh. Yeah. Well, Hey, Meg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell me about your week. Um, well, it's Monday, so, you know, just working, coffee shop, working on music stuff, mm-hmm. prepping to go out of town this weekend. Yeah, where are you going? Florida. Nice. It's going to be nice and warm, and I think there's a pool where we're staying, so it's exciting. Yeah, that mm-hmm. is exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Anything crazy happen this week? Um... I <laughs> oh, sort of stole grapes from a vineyard. Matt, <laughs> what do you mean so, you sort of stole grapes? So, so there was a vineyard near where me and some friends were staying up in Pennsylvania mm-hmm. near Lake Erie. And someone had said, oh, you can just take some of the grapes. But I felt like that was not a good idea because it's someone's livelihood. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like going to a farm and picking their produce without their knowledge or permission. Mm-hmm. But we'd pick some grapes and they were really strange tasting. Like? Like they they were really strong. Mm-hmm. They weren't like normal grapes and they had seeds, which was weird. And the texture was also very mucusy. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, it was an interesting experience. Yeah. So they weren't like sweet at all? No, not really. Oh. Sad. So kind of like eating wine without the alcohol (laughs) yum (laughs) well good well i'm glad that you weren't caught and we're not arrested for stealing stealing grapes grapes. yeah like a fox foxes do they steal grapes (laughs) (laughs) it's a it's a a band reference me without you yeah (laughs) oh yeah you can cut that part out (laughs) So good. Cool. Well, today we're going to be talking about mental health and, you know, what that looks like being a minority, especially in the world today. And obviously so much has happened in 2020. And yeah, so if you could just kind of share your experience with, you know, mental health and what that's looked like for you. Yeah. So I guess I'll start at the beginning. Um, I've always had an awareness of mental health, even as like a toddler, because my maternal grandmother um, had schizophrenia. Okay. So that's always been a part of the, not the zeitgeist, because it's just my family, but the the culture of my family. Mm. Um, but with my family and a lot of other minority families, it's something that you kind of hide and you kind of brush it under the rug, um, even without saying it. There's just kind of a stigma yeah, totally. that's attached to it, which is the same I feel like in a lot of families in America um, and the West, but I feel like black culture specifically, it's pretty stigmatized to yeah. to want to get help and even admit that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, like I've I've struggled with anxiety and depression over the years, yeah. like a lot of people, and it's really it was really amplified at the beginning of whatever time you want to call this time that we're living in now, the Corona times (laughs) Um, with the virus itself and everything shutting down. And then with all the social racial unrest that's been going on, um, kind of was hard to get out of bed for a bit. Yeah. Um, That's how my depression normally manifests. Mm. It's just very like, it's like there's a weighted blanket on top of me. Um, And you just kind of lay there and, be numb, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I, I got to a point, well, this this is pretty recently when I figured out, like, the cycle that I was in where I had to just get off of Instagram completely mm-hmm. because I felt like everything that I was feeding my mind was negative and all the images of everything happening and then 
people with conspiracy theories that also made me <laughs> angry. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, and that was really refreshing to just not dwell on the negativity for, you know, the majority of my day. Uh, but I also didn't want to deny the fact that, like, this stuff is real. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a balance between dwelling on the negative and denying the negative. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I had to take a break from social media, too, mm. just because it got to this point where I was like, I feel like people are just kind of talking about everything, which is fine and dandy, but, like, nothing was actually happening and there was no action being taken. Mm. And I was just like, this is great. It's all being, like, put in the light. But, like, we're really not doing anything about it. We're just kind of talking about it. And me and my friends were talking about, like, how, you know, when you post on your story and you post about, like, Black Lives Matter or any kind of, like, racial injustice issue, your audience is your friends. Mm -hmm. And so most of your friends are, like, you know, agreeing. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. So it's like you're not really reaching anyone. And that was, like, my breaking point of, like, I can't do this anymore. I gotta, I gotta hop off. Like, it's just a bunch of echo chambers yes. reinforcing their own. And I'm, like, thank you that my friends are, like, aware and they, like, really care about these issues. But mm. it was just, like, I, yeah, it's, like, an echo thing. Yeah. And ironically, I felt like that was the case. But also, I had friends who I didn't know felt differently <laughs> than oh, me about yeah, a lot of things. And would, you know, basically gaslight me. Well, not indirectly, into thinking like, oh, it's not actually an issue. And one thing, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, "Mm." (laughs) one way that I have started thinking about it is like, I'm a man Mm -hmm. and I experience the world very differently than a woman does. For example, like, walking to my car in a parking garage. Like, statistics say there's a probably a less than 1% chance that a woman will actually be attacked in that mm-hmm. um, scenario. But you're not going to say that, oh, you're just being paranoid if she has her keys out or has pepper spray in her purse. Like, totally. yeah. it's a thing that happens, so you might as well address it. And I feel like it's the same way. Yes, there's a less than 1% chance that as a black man, a police officer is going to shoot me unjustly but it's something that happens and you can't say that it's not yeah absolutely 100 percent. i think that's the challenging thing about it and i think that people in the majority population have done an okay job of trying to understand and um you know relate almost but Mm -hmm. i think it's like one of those things where like i'm not black, but I'm Asian, so I'm in the minority population, mm-hmm. where it's like, I don't really need you to, like, relate to me. Mm-hmm. I just need you to, like, understand that this isn't an issue yeah. and, like, make yourself educated and aware that, you know, this stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And don't... I think a big thing about it is, like, do not, like, try to... Oh, what's the word? Um, minimize? Yeah, or- like, minimize or, like... um. Oh, I can't think of it, whatever. <laughs> um, but, like, minimize the situation for someone who has had experiences in that or mm. has trauma in that or anything. You yeah. Know? And I think trauma in the black community is pretty widespread, mm-hmm. but not addressed in a widespread manner. Yeah. Like it should be. Can you elaborate on that? Um, <clears throat> well, I think that if you're a part of a population who, like, my my parents were the generation who, like, when my mom was in, like, th- second or third grade, she was part of the first class that was integrated. Mm, wow. And we try and think of these things as, like, ancient history. But, totally. like, my parents experienced this. My dad grew up in rural North Carolina in the 50s and 60s. So, I mean, I can't imagine what that was like for him. Yeah. And so that, I feel like that trauma, even if it's unspoken, kind of passes along through generations, even though it gets yeah. better every every generation, it's still, I don't know, there's still pain and wounds that you, you pass on to people without even realizing it. Yeah. Do you feel like that's something that you've had to kind of work through or 
have experienced? Um, personally, yes, but not in the sense that it was necessarily passed down from my parents. I feel like they did a good job of, you know, not pretending like all white or not thinking that, you know, white people are the devil or yeah, something totally. like they, I grew up in a white, a majority white neighborhood and predominantly white church I was homeschooled. So that's a whole nother level. Mm. <laughs> <stuff>. <laughs> um, so I didn't have like the typical black experience if there is sure. even a typical black experience. Yeah. Um, but the stereotypical one wasn't really part of my upbringing and that kind of led to some identity issues mm. that I'm, I feel like I'm still kind of wrestling through cause I wasn't black enough quote unquote to fit in with the black kids yeah. and I wasn't white. So I had to pretend I would basically call myself white to people as a defense mechanism to be like, Oh, they'll accept me if I just tell them I'm white. Yeah. And you know, I was coconut Oreo all those kind of things, like, oh, yeah. you're white on the inside. Totally. Uh, which then was like, oh, yeah, they accept me. But now I'm like, that's kind of a bad, terrible thing. Yeah. It's like, kind <laughs> racist. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm still kind of processing through all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I had a very similar experience to you. Like, I grew up in an all-white neighborhood, school, church, you name it. Like mm. my, I'm adopted. So my parents are white. Um, my brother is Asian. He's adopted, but mm. like, I was not like, it was like, like you said, like I wasn't Asian enough to fit mm -hmm. into this box, but I'm also not white, mm. but like working, like that was a lot of my mental health too, was working through my identity as like being a proud Asian woman mm -hmm. and like proclaiming that over myself and not that your race is your identity by any means, but, you know, for the longest time, it was like, oh, I, I just feel like I'm white. Mm -hmm. And people would make jokes like, oh, like, you're as American as a hot dog. Like, you know, just stupid things. That you're Which like, are German, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it's just like, it's interesting to have that mindset and to actually to have another person say that and to mm -hmm. go through the similar experiences as yourself. And I think even what I've realized recently is, I guess over the past couple of years, is that, you know, being black is whatever I want it to be. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have to be what the media says it is, what my social circles say it is. Like, I am who I am, which happens to be black. So whatever I am is black. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I think that's really good. Um, and I know you touched base a little bit ago about, you know, stigmas in the black community and all of that. Do you feel like you've experienced certain stigmas because you are black and you are a man? Um, in terms of mental health or just Yeah, overall? mental health and other things too? Um, not necessarily as it pertains to mental health, but stigmas, yeah, like being judged by my appearance, whether it's like getting on an elevator and a lady like switching her, the mm. sides of her purse or yeah. like overt things like a big truck with the lift kit on it, revving its engine and yelling the N word at me, um, mm. down the street. Um, yeah, it's, it's happened for sure. But, um, I'm trying to think of how trying to bring everything back to mental health <laughs> no it's totally good you're totally good cool matt have you ever been to therapy <laughs> um i have not even though i do champion it with other people mm -hmm. and i always you know sing his praises but and every two or three months i'll get on this cake and i'm like okay i'm gonna find a therapist and i'll search for one and like think about booking an appointment and like seeing my calendar when I could. Yeah. And then the next day I'm just like, ah, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And my mom is even like a certified counselor. Oh, no way. And so it's something that I think is really valuable, but something within me has always been like, ah, no. <laughs> yeah. Do you think it's like a fear of judgment? 
I, it's definitely fear. I don't mm-hmm. know if it's judgment. I think it's a fear of change. Interesting. Even though, you know, when I'm in that spot mentally, change is what I want. But it's also, like, comfortable to just be like, huh, I'm where I'm at. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously I'm a therapist, so I'm a little biased. (laughs) But um, I think it's, like, one of those things where I think people think therapy is just really, like, oh, this is easy and great, and we're Mm. just going to, like, talk about our feelings and whatever. (laughs) But, like, I realized, like, when I went through, like, kind of the fire with therapy per se like i really worked on my trauma regarding racism mm. and i was like no this actually sucks i hate yeah. therapy it's a lot of work it's a lot of work it's like you have to go sit for an hour each week and talk about all your shit and then it's <laughs> like you feel awful afterwards because mm. you're just like emotionally hungover. um so it's like i think people think therapy is like a walk in the park but if you're really doing your work mm. it's not at all yeah but it's obviously, like, it helped me a lot through that, and I'm a big proponent of it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, it'd be kind of sad if I wasn't. Yeah. But... <laughs> it's like exercise, and I have the same relationship with exercise. <laughs> that every two or three months, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, like, sign up for this class. I'm going <laughs> to, yeah. like, chart out, like, okay, I'm going to run or walk, like, three miles this day, and then two, and then five. And, like, have this whole plan, and then I'm just like, oh, I'll start it next week. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I mean, yeah, that's kind of how we are with tennis. <laughs> we play one week, and then we're like, oh, see you in a month. <laughs> we can do it. I can be consistent. We're committed. <laughs> yeah, but that's interesting, like, you talking about, like, there's fear around change. Mm. Yeah, going back. What do you feel like is, like, the fear of change for you? I think it's the fear of being different than who I am, mm. in a sense. Like, I've kind of gotten into a rhythm with myself and my own struggles that I'm like, okay. It's like being in a a ditch. Yeah. But it's kind of like cozy. You're like, I know life is better, like, on the main road, mm-hmm. but I'm going to have to, like, walk there (laughs) yeah so i mean at the end of the day maybe it is just kind of a form of laziness to just not want to actually do the hard work or maybe the fear of change is actually a fear of the hard work Mm. because i know how how much work is going to be yeah totally yeah i mean it is a lot of work (laughs) you know definitely but i think it's it's good that you recognize that like i Mm -hmm. think that takes a lot of self-awareness um, and I think it's like one of those things where, you know, when you're ready to go and you're mm-hmm. ready to do it, but, and I always tell people, I'm like, don't push people to go to therapy. Mm-hmm. Like they're going to do it when they need to, but until they're ready, like you could push someone to do it, but they're not going to do anything about it. Like they're not really going to get the perspective the and it. the most out of it. Mm-hmm. So you talked about how... You know, people would say, oh, you're an Amer- as American as a hot dog. Mm-hmm. You're basically white, all that stuff. How did you actually get to like, come to terms with that and deal with that um, later in life? I think it was a very long journey because so with my trauma, it was like I didn't really recognize that it hurt me and affected me as bad as it did. Because that happened about middle school, all of high school for Mm -hmm. me. And it wasn't until senior year of college when I went to therapy for the first time. And, like, my therapist, they were grad school therapists, so it was free. I, like, that wasn't even something that we were, like, going to touch on. Like, that was nothing nothing in my brain that was swirling. It was, like, so repressed (laughs) that I was just, like, had no clue. Mm. So... Basically, how it came out was um, we were doing this exercise called I Am a Tree. And I really don't know what the point of the <laughs> exercise was because we never really got past the roots. Hmm. So I like they had me draw a picture of a tree with roots and leaves and stuff. And so your roots were your foundation, like your community and your culture and all of that. 
And so I started talking about it and started like processing it in therapy. And I had this like huge breakdown and I lost it. And I was like, oh my gosh. And my therapist was like, hey, like what's going on? And I was like, I have no idea. I feel like I'm having this weird out of body experience that I cannot control. So I just like sobbed for like a good 10 minutes, I think. And then finally gained composure and was just like, oh, okay. So my racism that affected me for middle and high school is really hitting me now. And I'm just realizing it. Mm. So I think it was one of those things where I worked through with it. I worked through it for a year with my therapist, my current therapist. And I think I came, I think I'm still coming into the identity like you are. Mm. Like it's one of those things where I don't feel like 100% like I'm an Asian woman and I'm very proud and blah, blah, blah. Because so much of my trauma is people, like, stereotyping me or mm-hmm. saying, oh, you should be getting math, you're Asian, or, you know, oh, you're not really that Asian, like, you're you're more white. Mm. So just, like, kind of taking in those comments and digesting them and figuring that out. Um, but I think, like, coming to the point of, like, where I feel felt more confident was when I worked through a lot of my trauma and I realized like oh like I am I don't have to be what these people tell me that I am Mm. like my identity does not come from others opinions about me and what they have to say or what box they put me in yeah um and it also was like a spiritual thing too where it's like the Lord has just kind of taught me over the years of like no like you're my child you're my beloved and that's Mm. what really matters in all of this you know it doesn't really matter what people have to say about you and all of that and so it's like okay the lord created me so he like he created me as an asian woman so i want to be proud of that and like Mm -hmm. i shouldn't have to put myself in a box or i shouldn't have to pretend that i'm white to fit in it's like the world and people should accept me as a Asian woman and not as, oh, a, a girl who grew up in a white society is just pretty white, mm. you know? Yeah. I don't know if that answered your question at Yeah, all. it does, for sure. I think one thing that helped me kind of come to terms with my blackness mm. um, was when I was younger, I would um, intentionally distance myself from things that were black and i yeah. i actually kind of think that this is put on me unintentionally by my parents there was like a a month long period or whatever where i would get in trouble if my pants would sag oh yeah and like my dad would get really mad and just be like you got to pull up, you got to put put a belt on like pull up your pants which i mean obviously like be modest <laughs> like don't go around yeah like that but now realizing it was to protect me in totally. a sense because you know if that's one of the hallmarks of a quote thug or whatever is you know sagging pants um so like i never i would avoid rap music i would say like oh i hate rap music mm-hmm. um and anything that had anything to do with black culture i would kind of just distance myself from um so kind of diving deep into the history of rap music and other forms of black music totally. whether it's like soul or funk or even like early country um has its roots in in black musicians and then reading books by people like Tanahasi Coates mm-hmm. or um James Baldwin I actually never read any James Baldwin books but I listened to a lot of his speeches <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um and at the beginning of the 2020 unrest um a lot of people were reaching out to me and being like yeah what do you what are your thoughts on this like mm-hmm. i don't really understand like what's going on all this stuff and i would i would say read between the world and me by Tanahasi coates and then read anything by james baldman and like i'd send them a bunch of youtube videos kind of basically explaining systematic racism yeah, in america totally. and they were like, so a lot of them were like I had no idea that this, like, 
even happened. So I think if nothing politically or if there are no laws that are enacted from this 2020 protest cycle, and it is a cycle because that's also my pessimism. Because mm. I'm like, this happened in 2014, 2016, 2018, 2020. It's like a two-year cycle totally. um, of people getting really revved up about this. And there's just little changes every time, which is disheartening. Because you're like, oh, is anything actually going to change for real? Or is it just going to be lip service? But I think this time, maybe it's because everyone has been staying at home and not as distracted by their daily lives. that People are really paying attention and putting it on themselves to learn um, why the unrest exists. So I think that's going to be a good outcome. And I remember what I was going to say earlier. Oh, great. Um, which is related to this also, like people learning to have that empathy. And that's something that even the last couple months I've been learning with um, people in the communities that I grew up in, semi-rural North Carolina, um, and people being afraid to let go of, you know, their Confederate statues, their Confederate flags, all these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to learn to understand that not all of those people see that as a hateful symbol. They see it as a symbol of, you know, the culture of a simpler time of like hunting and fishing and like living off the land and like pre-industrial stuff. And that's all well and good, but I don't think... I think that's superseded by the hatred that it represents for the majority of the population. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And the fact that it's a symbol of a lost war. Yeah. Like, that honestly has never made sense to me. Like, if you lose a war, that should be over, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really interesting perspective to put Mm. on that. Um, Yeah, I think I really took this year to kind of examine, like, wait, I really don't know that much about, like, the history of, like, black culture and all Mm. that. And so I'm way far from being educated from it. But I did take time to, like, you know, read some books and watch a movie like Just Mercy just mm. to kind of get an understanding. And um, I think it's interesting to, like you said, like it is kind of this weird cycle that we go through as Americans. And it is like, oh, we're going to have a protest and this is going to get brought up. And, you know, this is awful, but nothing really changes. Like we're mm. still having like, of course, like police brutality and all this awful stuff happening in our world. Mm. Um, But I think it's good that you have hope that like people are becoming more empathetic and more aware. And I think that's true too. Like, I think I've had a couple of friends ask me like about just even being a minority and my experiences and what can they do? Mm -hmm. And I always encourage people to, I mean, I believe change kind of happens with your own person. Yeah. So examining your your own heart for real and looking and thinking like, oh, do I have racist tendencies or do I stereotype or do I do this? And mm. everyone does. It's yeah. not like a shaming thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it kind of starts with yourself and figuring all that out. And um, what was I going to say? But, like, if you can kind of examine yourself and figure that out and figure out what you have, like, in your heart that feel that is racist or stereotyping, Mm. then you can teach your children to be opposite of that. And you can teach your friends and teach your community. And I think that's kind of, like, where change will start to happen. Mm. Because if a bunch of people are aware of what they're thinking and saying and viewing people, groups, then it's like, oh, well, maybe we can start to change the narrative of what things have looked like for the past 5,000 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and to swing it back to mental health, like yeah. if you are in a community that, you know, every two years there's this cycle of unrest and everything and it goes back to 1500, I guess, when they start, first started totally importing African slaves to the Americas. And it's always been 
it hasn't always been this way, but it's always been a way. Mm-hmm. Like, how can that not have mental health consequences for an entire swath of people? Oh, constantly yeah, 100%. Being told, not told in words, but told by actions that they're, you know, three-fifths of a person. Um, yeah. And the fact that the mental health p- part of this equation is really not talked about in the black community is really, really sad because it's, it has to be there. Like that trauma is so widespread that, mm-hmm. you know, it can't not exist in that community. Yeah. And I think our world has done a better job about talking about mental health, mm. but I still think we're a long ways away from getting to the point where we treat it like physical health, where you go mm-hmm. to the doctor cause you have a broken bone. So you go to the doctor, get it fixed. Yeah, It's like, if you have anxiety or depression or you have trauma or whatever, it's like, Oh, you're going to a therapist while well, you're crazy. Mm. And that makes me so sad. And so heartbroken to feel like, like you said, like even like generational stuff, like, mm. oh, this is looked down upon and it's still being looked down upon. So you shouldn't do it mm. or you don't need to go to a therapist because we don't talk about our problems. And that's a really common, mm. like, um, whatever you want to call it, like common thread, mm-hmm. which is sad. Yeah. I wonder, I don't know if you know any statistics, but how widespread is mental health awareness in other parts of the world as compared to America and I guess the West? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually don't know that. Mm-hmm. I I feel like I should probably look that up though. I think, yeah, I have no idea actually. I looked up some st- or statistics today around like being a minority and what that looks like for mental health and like a lot of people minority culture have you know mental illness whether that's depression or something more serious like schizophrenia but they don't have the resources or access to get help Mm. so I guess more so talking about like lower income neighborhoods like not having any resources because like honestly therapy is expensive like Mm. You know, you go to a private practice therapist, that's 120 bucks a session. Mm. So obviously not everyone has access to those means. And thankfully a lot of places do insurance or they take like a sliding scale kind Mm. of deal. But I feel like most people in lower income, whether that's black or Asian or whatever, you know, they're not able to get the resources they actually need. So they're just suffering Mm. and yeah, we need to change the game on that one. How do you think that the American church and mental health have interacted over the years? Woo! <laughs> <laughs> about to open up a can of worms in here. Yeah, I mean, no, it's great. Like, I actually, I have a lot of thoughts around it. Like, so many thoughts. Tell me. Okay. Um, so basically, like, I, I, I've had so many experiences with people where they say like, oh, Jesus is all you need and he's going to take care of it and he's going to heal you Mm. and you don't need to go talk to a therapist because if it's true that God is all like you need, then you don't need another. And I'm like, wait, what kind of BS is that? (laughs) Like, I broke my femur. The Lord's all you need. The Lord's all you need. You're going to be healed. Like, that's it. And I think that's, like, that's the mindset some people have. And that's been spoken to me personally. Mm. And I'm like, but, like, God gave people, you know, education. Mm. And they, he put counselors in the world. Mm. Like, if we didn't need counseling, it probably wouldn't exist. Yeah. But I think there's something to be said about, you know, yes, like the Lord is so good and he is faithful and he can heal. And I'm a firm believer in that. But I also think there's nothing wrong with going to get help, going to see a therapist to talk about your stuff. Because when you have a trained professional, like helping you deal with your issues, it's it's just different. Mm-hmm. And I was just talking to someone recently about, like, 
pastoral counseling and all of that. And okay, this, I guess this may get me in trouble or whatever. <laughs> hot takes. Hot takes. <laughs> um, but it's like, I think that pastoral counseling is fine and good and mm-hmm. helpful. But I also think that there's something to be said about going to a trained person and not, it's okay, whatever. So, sorry. <laughs> Pastors are trained and like, they are trained in counseling to an extent, mm-hmm. but to have someone who has like their master's degree and has spent years studying it and researching it and that is like their life, mm-hmm. I think that's something so different and ha- more helpful than just going to a pastor for, you know, advice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking to my friend about like her and her um, fiance are getting married since, so they were talking about marriage counseling or mm-hmm. premarital counseling. And they were like, yeah, I think we're just, like, going to go to, like, this person who's trained in our church. And I was like, yeah, that's great. I was like, but also please consider, like, going to an, a therapist who's trained in marriage and family mm-hmm. and trained in, like, a relationships and stuff. So it's like I feel like both sides of the coin where it's like I don't feel an issue towards pastoral counseling. But I also feel more strongly about having someone going to an actual therapist to talk about stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that the church has not done a great job with mental health because of the whole, like, oh, oh, okay, this is, oh, man, I'm so sorry, Aaron. <laughs> this is it. Like, this is where I get really, really fired up because it's, like, people are, like, especially if you're in a spirit-led church, they're very much so easy or quick to be, like, Oh, it's just a demon in them. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, laughing so loud to the camera. Um, And I'm like, like, but I do believe in like spiritual warfare. And Mm -hmm. I do believe like the enemy definitely attacks people and, you know, can attack them through mental health. But because someone has depression does not mean that they have a demon in them. It's Mm. just because also depression is a chemical imbalance in your brain. Mm. So it goes so much deeper than, oh, there's just a demon in you. Like, it's (laughs) like, no, there's a chemical imbalance in your brain and that's okay. Mm. Let's get you in therapy. Let's put you on medication to also help the problem. I don't think that Praying a demon out of someone is going to cure their depression or their anxiety. <laughs> and that what, that's what makes me so mad. Mm. I don't know. I, I think the reason I asked it was because yeah. I feel like the the black community, like church is such a vital part of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of replaced any kind of mental health awareness. Totally. Not entirely. And that's like a blanket statement when it shouldn't be a blanket statement. But... Mm-hmm. Speaking in generalities, um, and especially since a lot of black churches are, as you said, spirit-led. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of, oh, just pray it away. Oh, yeah. Pray it away. It'll totally. be fine. Which, there's power in prayer. I believe that. But God gave us minds, and God gave people the wisdom to be counselors, to help people with their minds. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think it's like one of those things where until the church decides to incorporate like counseling and mental health into it, like, and I know some churches with count, like licensed, trained, counselor, licensed yeah. counselors, mm-hmm. like on staff. And that's mm-hmm. awesome. And I very much applaud them. Um, but I think until it's like one of those things where, it's spoken about or preached about like it's just it's just gonna be swept under the rug Mm -hmm. and um a church I went to they did a mental health panel and I thought it was really good they didn't have any licensed counselors on the panel (laughs) 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 I watched some panels on like race in the church mm-hmm. and it was all like white people <laughs> yeah like, we love that mm. <laughs> it's interesting because um yeah it is interesting when a bunch of white people talk about black issues mm. i'm like not that you can't have empathy or not that you can't like relate quote mm-hmm. unquote but it's just there's something to be said about having 
a person of color talk about their community and their experiences. Mm-hmm. But one thing I think was really cool that I hadn't seen until this year mm-hmm. in all the cycles of unrest is that there's been a recognition that a recognition by a lot of white people that, oh, we are the ones in power in the society. Yeah. And we are the ones who actually have the responsibility to change things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was a cool thing to see. Yeah, that's awesome. Where it's in the past, it's like, oh, you like the whole pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Like, but when there's a boot on your neck, mm. like there's not really a much strap pulling you can do. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's something else I was going to ask. Oh, yeah. Um, with the prevalence now of, mm-hmm. especially on social media that I've seen, of the destigmatization of mental health, do you think there's a danger of over, I don't, oversaturating is not the word, but kind of relating everything to mental health? Like, as an extreme example, someone being like, oh, I just had a bad day. I need to process my trauma. Like, but their bad day was they ran out of gas and such and such. Like, is there, or do you think that's legitimate? Do you think there's like a weird pendulum swing where people are over, in the same way that people over-spiritualize things? Mm-hmm. You think people over-mental healthalize <laughs> things? Yeah. Or there's a danger of that becoming a trend? Yeah, I think that there is definitely because I think where I feel like that is a danger is when people, oh gosh, let me think about this. I don't know if this is going to answer your question, Mm -hmm. but, oh no, I don't think. mm. (laughs) Do you think it's at all dismissive or belittling to people with I don't, I don't want to say that anyone's mental health journey is illegitimate. Sure. But do you think it's something that people have latched onto unfairly in any way? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that people, like, I think it's it makes me, like, frustrated when people are like, oh, I'm just so, so OCD. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you're actually not. No, you're that's not. a real, <laughs> that's a real, real mental illness. Yeah. Um, you're just you just like tidiness, mm-hmm. and you just like to be clean. Yeah. That's not OCD. That's just being type A. <laughs> um, I think I see it in like more. I think I see it more so like when people claim their mental illness as their like identity and their label, mm. where it's like, oh, I'm just depressed or I'm just anxious, and that's all I am. Yeah. It's like, no, you're a lot more than that, and that's not who you are as a person, but you struggle with it, and that's mm-hmm. okay. Um, I'm trying to think of, like, an example of, like, where I feel people have over, gone overboard with it. Or it's also possible that it's so ubiquitous mm-hmm. that it seems that way because everyone is actually struggling with that. yeah. Especially in, like, Western society, I feel like anxiety is kind of part of the American dream. Interesting. In some ways. Because you, in my eyes, the American dream is you work yourself to death for 40 years. Yeah. And then you retire. And you hope that you saved enough for when you retire. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, all these milestones you have to hit with marriage, with kids, with owning a house with the picket fence or whatever, yeah. the right car, the right country club membership. And that's that puts anxiety on people. Like, oh, am I doing enough? Am I yeah. being the, the person I'm supposed to be in this society? Totally. Because I also think that our world really... Um, our world really... Um, favors busyness Mm -hmm. like it's like oh if you're busy then you're important yeah hustle and um oh if you're working really hard then you must be doing something right Mm -hmm. but it's like such a backwards and twisted way of looking at things it's like no like we're supposed to rest Mm -hmm. like you can't 
it's kind of like the whole like um cheese saying of like you can't really pour from an empty cup Mm -hmm. so i think i think that people are becoming more aware of their mental health now but i also think that sometimes people use it as a crutch almost Mm. like like i said earlier like this is your like oh i'm i'm in I have anxiety and that's who I am. And like, Mm -hmm. they don't really work to get out of or to like help themselves. And that's kind of my population. I work with addiction is that I kind of just see them fall into the same cycle and over and over and over again, where they like, they think they can't break the cycle of addiction Mm. because that's what they've been taught for years, like grandparents, parents, whatever. And so I think it's, yeah, I think it's just one of those things where people just get kind of tied to it and then they just feel like they're trapped. Mm. And it's kind of like, I was about to say like a psychological study, but like we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, we are going to go there. But yeah. there's a study done where um, dogs are like, I could be getting this so wrong and then I get like, you know, totally discredited <laughs> for what I do. Like, this is a wrong study. You can look it up beforehand and if it's wrong, just cut it out. Just cut it out, whatever, screw it. Um, so basically where it's like the there are these dogs and they get shocked. Mm-hmm. And then so then they jump to another safe area. Mm-hmm. But then I think the researchers do this thing where they like basically make all of it not safe where it's like you're going to get electrocuted wherever you go Mm. so the dogs eventually just lay down down and Mm. don't do anything because it's like a learned helplessness is the is the term that we use in counseling psychology Mm. so it's like you're in this horrible cycle so bad that you just kind of lay down and give up Hmm. when was that study done because i feel like you wouldn't be able to shock dogs. No, today. probably not. <laughs> probably done like the 1920s, like yeah. <laughs> before PETA and all that stuff. I have no idea when that study was done. I don't even know if it was a correct study. It sounds like something completely wrong. But I think that's the study that was done for the, like to prove kind of learned helplessness. And I think mm. that's kind of what a lot of people find themselves in. Mm-hmm. But I think that's also like controversial, I yeah. think. So. <laughs> Hot takes, hot takes. Hot takes. <laughs> Maybe I should rename the podcast. Hot takes of Megan Brown. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this has been really insightful and helpful for me. And I'm sure for our listeners too, to just kind of get a firsthand look at someone's experience. And especially, you know, with the world being what it is right now and mm. I think it's great that we've been able to talk about our experiences and weirdly enough, they kind of relate to each other. Yeah. Yeah. The minority experience. Hashtag it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah. I've never been on a podcast before. I listened to plenty of them. I was listening to one on the way here and I already know which one I'm going to listen to on the way back. Nice. Home. Um, yeah it was a lot of fun that's awesome well thank you for coming on and sharing your experiences and being very honest and open about them i appreciate it i um feel very honored to be a part of someone's experience and journey and being able to hear you know their stories and where they've come from and what they've been through and you know being able to sit with them and hear them out in full And I think that's kind of the heart behind this whole podcast is, Mm. you know, you're giving me permission for you to be seen and just sharing more about your heart behind everything. And, um, I really appreciate it and have enjoyed talking and joking and, um, I don't know, kind of getting to know my friends a lot deeper Mm. yeah well thanks for having me yeah of course it's fun um i'm glad i could shed some insight on experience but also it is therapeutic Mm. to you know talk some things out yeah and before we go i know you shared about this 
a minute ago, but do you have any good resources that listeners can kind of go to to learn more about what it's like to be a minority or a black man? Or Yeah, um, a couple documentaries. Um, well, a film, Just Mercy, mm-hmm. is really great. Kind of explores the justice system. Another film documentary that explores the justice system, but kind of in a different light, is 13th. Mm-hmm. It's on Netflix. It's by Ava... Du- Duvernay, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. Um, it's kind of about the prison industrial complex and how that relates to um, the black experience. Um, another documentary that I thought was really fascinating is I Am Not Your Negro. Mm. And it's about the, it's based on an unfinished book by James Baldwin that he, he died before he was able to finish it, but it kind of chronicles his journey through being um, a black gay man in the 1960s and then moving to France and then coming back um, right before uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was killed and then Malcolm X was killed. And those were like his personal friends. And Mm. so it kind of it's more of a personal story of him, but I think he's a fascinating human being. Um, the book Between the World and Me by ta Coates is really great. Um, it kind of explains the experience of feeling strange in your own body as mm-hmm. a black person. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Um, yeah, those are my personal recommendations, but there's a plethora of things to to research and listen to and watch that's awesome good well hopefully our listeners can take those and run with them yeah but yeah well good well there we go there we are (laughs) permission to be seen podcast is recorded in nashville tennessee featuring megan brown and her wonderful guests Music and production by me, Aaron Chase. We would love to hear from you. Please leave a five-star review and a comment anywhere that you're listening to this podcast. It would really help us out. Megan can also be reached on Instagram at permission to be seen. Thanks. Hey friends, also wanted to give a reminder that while I am a national certified counselor with a master's in clinical mental health counseling, this podcast is not a replacement for your own mental health services. I encourage my listeners to seek out a therapist that is the right fit for themselves. I'm Megan Brown. You have permission to be seen. See you next week.